Welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. My name is Ali Hanley. Today I'm bringing you part two of our coverage of the local bioenergy debate. Last episode, you heard my introduction to the topic and a presentation made by Dean Belfield, one of the people behind the proposed bioenergy plant. I highly recommend you go back and listen to that first episode if you haven't already heard it. You can find it on your podcast app or go to saltgrasspodcast.com and search for bioenergy. It's the most recent episode, so you should be able to find it pretty easily. And that just gives you a much more full idea of the background behind this story. In today's episode, part two, I'm sharing with you the Q&A session that followed Dean's presentation. A quick reminder that the local sustainability group, MASG, has been working for years to establish a bioenergy plant in the region. The selected site for this is a meatworks factory run by an international company. It's called by many names locally, Don KR, The Bako or Castle Bacon are just a couple. This event that I've recorded happened a couple of weeks ago, so that's mid-August 2021. Before that, there had been online information events like Zoom meetings, a website was created and there was some printed material circulated by MASG, but primarily that was for those living in direct proximity to the proposed plant. Due to COVID restrictions and other considerations, this was the first meeting with the broader community on this topic. Before this meeting, there had been a lot of activity online, articles in the paper and banners strung up around town protesting the proposed plant with people fearing that the facility would take all kinds of waste and from right across the state. So they were afraid that our town would become a dumping ground for the state. On this night, both Dean and another MASG committee member, Bill Grant, were on hand to answer questions. Bill is also heavily involved in the bioenergy project and is a waste consultant by profession. So as you can imagine, this topic is currently of great significance to our local community here in Castlemaine. However, I'm hoping that people listening from further afield will also find it interesting. I'm sure people listening in Europe or other places where bioenergy is more common and established may remember times when your community was as new to this as we are and as sceptical. I wonder if you've had similar town meetings and I also wonder, and feel free to contact us at Saltgrass, I wonder how it's gone for your town, what the result has been and how people locally feel about those bioenergy plants. So yeah, contact us at Saltgrass if you are listening from a place that has an established bio facility <laughs> and let us know uh, what you've been thinking and how your town's been responding. This type of conversation with the community is really important. It's, it's really vital when new things like this are being set up and it's also really hard to do. As mentioned in the last episode, it's kind of strange for a sustainability group whose express purpose is to make our environment cleaner and safer and reduce emissions to be in the position of having to defend themselves against accusations of creating toxic or environmentally harmful projects. Uh, however, you know, people's concerns about this are absolutely justified and not all bioenergy facilities are equal. And MASIC doesn't have complete control over this project in the long term. What you're gonna hear is the Q&A and I found it really curious listening to Dean try and translate engineering and big business processes into everyday English in this meeting. I can see how easily things that are normal in that world can seem strange to people who don't swim in those waters every day, and I certainly don't. 
Underlying that is kind of this strange cultural dislocation for this project. So much environmental and climate-related work is about trying to localise, stop big business from making big decisions with big amounts of money that can and do affect us. And yet, in terms of renewable energy and some other tech-based contributions to the climate situation that we're in, we are operating on those levels. We do need big business to get on board with climate and take care of their emissions. Some of the biggest problems may require big high-tech solutions. Others won't, but some of them may. And operating from green power is just the first step for businesses to start operating in an environmentally friendly way. There is so much more involved. Some companies will have to rethink their entire business model and some will become obsolete. And yes, I'm looking at you, petroleum, coal and gas. It's taken years of work behind the scenes at MASC to get the proposed bioenergy facility even this far. And as a society, we need to make this sort of project happen really fast and across the board in the next 10 years to have any meaningful effect on climate change. I think, though, that there's a couple of things here. This is only one of the many ways that renewable energy is being established across Australia. There are massive solar and wind farms popping up all over the place. But also, once a few of these bio facilities are built and people can see how they work, then there may be a surge of interest and future projects would probably go ahead with a lot more speed. And as for any of these sorts of things, the concerns of the local community are really important. And so is the safety of the community who is going to live with this plant. So what you're going to hear in this episode is an example of why some of the climate solutions that people really believe would help in a global effort towards mitigating climate change can take so long to happen. Mazga has been treating the climate crisis as an emergency for over a decade. On this project, they've been pushing uphill for several years behind the scenes to get the corporation to sign on and now working with the community to try and gain acceptance and trust that the project will work as they plan for it to. It's a reminder that change takes time and that 10 years is a tiny amount of time to make this kind of change happen on a really broad scale. On a practical note, before we begin, as I was recording from a live event, unfortunately anything that was said off mic or without microphone nearby, I've had to cut out because you just can't hear it. But I will try and summarise or explain what was being said as we go. So you'll hear me popping in and out of this episode a fair bit. At the end of the evening, I asked a few people if they would reflect on what they thought of the evening and if it had changed their perspective of the proposed bioenergy plant. As ever, I would like to acknowledge that saltgrass is produced on Jara country. Jara country is the traditional home of the Jajawurrung people, who have been the custodians and caretakers of this land for tens of thousands of years. Always was, always will be. Aboriginal land. Sovereignty was never ceded. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Salt Grass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. So the first question asked was by a woman sitting up the back of the audience. And as soon as she finished, the man next to her took the mic and had his say. So I'm just explaining that as to why it sounds like no one replied to her. But Dean does answer her question after that man has finished his piece. Look, thank you for that lovely spiel that we've just received. Look, I'm just really concerned when Dean has said that they haven't even got designs on this uh, proposed plant. How can they determine or promise anything? Uh, to me, it's just fake and false of what we are actually getting when they don't know what they're designing. 
So does anyone want to answer that? Excuse me, I ran one of these for 14 years and I'm telling you, why don't you fly to Germany, buy it and bring it back, charge it to Don, so, because this will be, it's only going to cost us so much. What do the people in this town get out of it? Because if you're going to tell me the council are going to make money, like put the tip prices up, I live out in the bush, you may as well call the tip the bush or the bush the tip because nobody will pay the money. This thing, I cannot believe you're saying we're going to bring four or five trucks of recyclable material, which it won't be, it's out of date foodstuffs. Every time you turn the television on, every restaurant is saving on food. We do this, we're saving on that. You're telling me you're going to bring five trucks? What are they? Utilities. Go to Germany, buy one, charge it to Don, see how it goes. Don't involve the community at all because you won't make a cent. So can you humour me and give me the first question again, please? Okay, so Lisa, what we are following is a standard industrial process. Okay, and let me just make that clear. Whether we like it or not, there's, there's a process that we're following. We're not making this up, by the way. So what we have done in terms of the process is develop what we call a high-level design. And that's available. It's on the website. It's on the, the slide here. I can show it to you. It's one of the next slides. So that high-level design is like a conceptual design. It shows the flow of the material, where it goes to, indicative volumes and so on. And so on the anaerobic digestion side, we can point to the one in Perth, Western Australia, and this is done in the feasibility study, and that gives us the metrics. We've got process flow diagrams that have the numbers and so on. But those, those numbers, whilst they exist, and they're entirely defensible, and they work, ultimately it's not our responsibility. We write the tender documentation saying this is the sort of outcome we want, this is a, the specification that we're looking to get a solution towards, but part of these the community meetings is that we take concerns on board, and you prioritise those, of course, and they get reflected in the scope of works that's passed across to the design engineer or engineering company that is given the task of designing that final solution. And it's not a done deal at day one, it takes a number of months to do, but they need a starting point. And what we give them is a starting point. Right? So it is an iterative process. The anaerobic digestion component is so well known and I think a lot of people said let's not focus on that because we accept that that works, we're reasonably comfortable with that, but that's how it is. So for the biomass, the same approach applies. The Jandakot plant that you are basing this on is currently built in an industrial community. It has 500 metres from the anaerobic digester plant to the Aksha Pumrimata, and then houses are even further away from that. I actually had a relative go through that Jandakot plant because I was interested, because that seemed to be the lesser of what these plants is. It actually seemed a better option. My relative that went through that was actually in support of this type of plan, but he was nearly sick because of the smell of it and he said he would not want to live near it. There was an interruption here by some of the audience which was off mic. There was a lot of talking at once in the room and Dean did not have a chance to reply to that specific comment. John the MC then took one of the questions he'd heard amongst all of the questions and repeated it. And just a reminder for those that don't know, when people are talking about the EPA, they mean the Environmental Protection Authority. That's the government body responsible for monitoring and policing how much human activities are impacting the environment. All right, we'll take... So that is 
That is the one question we're going to answer now. How much is it going to cost? So the whole facility will cost roughly $20 million. We don't know until we've got the tender responses back, but that's our ballpark figure that we are working to or that we think is about right. And the, I, how much, I can't answer you that question, Maz. All Maz wants from this is a small ongoing annuity stream to keep itself d delivering projects back to the community. Okay, so we've got another question over here. I have three small questions, if that's all right. I just wanted to make you aware that when Don built their main factory, they promised residents that they would not be building any further north of where they are now. That was one. I understand ownership changes, but we were actually promised that that's as far as they would go. I have concerns that there will be no screening of what is going in. So I understand you say you're only going to accept all the good material, but you know, unless you're screening each your truckload, you know, there, there could be plastics in that. And of course, what goes in has to come out. And that concerns us when it's so close to town. And I have another question. <laughs> what happens when Massag sell their 5% to shareholders how can you guarantee that standards are going to be the same? Okay, so firstly, in terms of what Don promised, all I can say is that I'm sympathetic to that. I know nothing about that. It's something outside of our control. You know, we're not saying, uh, promising anything that we're going to renege on. That's not our intent. It's not a, the ethical basis on which we're proposing this plan, and it's important to us. So all I can say is that's regretful. And I can assure you we've raised this with Don's, and none of the people that we've mentioned it to were there at the time. So there's no sort of corporate knowledge of that, but clearly that was an issue. So I acknowledge that. The other two questions, I think Bill's probably better qualified to answer than I am, if you're happy to yeah. do that, Bill. Okay, I'll deal with that question then. It's not build and forget, it's gonna have EPA oversight, an EPA license. The new environmental regs are basically like work cover in terms of you can be prosecuted for not having a risk management plan that you adhere to. In terms of testing the feedstocks, I deal a lot with composting sites and they have systems for vetting loads that come in. The facility isn't going to be an open gate facility. It's not going to be anyone with a load of rubbish can turn up. It's going to be contracted with as few suppliers as possible. So they will have a specification of what they need to provide. Um, loads will be vetted as they come through. The other side of it is emissions will be vetted test it. This is what happens at composting sites now and they get rejected so it happens pretty constantly with councils bringing in organics to composting sites the loads get rejected. We're not going to be taking stuff collected at curb like, and straight the truck straight to the site. It will go through a supplier who knows they have to meet a particular spec to, to take it to the site. So that would be how that would dealt with and it will have, under the EPA licence, you need to have a management plan that shows that the new regulations have, your, you've got to meet your general environmental duties. Thanks, my name is Susie. Look, I've got a different perspective. I think it sounds fantastic. And I think it sounds like it's something that our community would be really proud of. It's that we could be real leaders in circular economy. And I'm looking in the room and we're all quite mature here. And I'd be really interested to know whether you're going to be presenting this to the high school because our young people are going to be living in this community for way longer than any of us with denuded topsoils and an overheated climate and I think that they'd be really interested to hear about this and I'd love to know what their questions were. So is there an opportunity for you to be able to present to our young people who are deeply concerned about 
uh, community rising to the challenge of climate change? Absolutely. I mean, we'd love to do that. And as you say, they are the future of the community when we're long composted or whatever ends up with us. Thank you, Dean. So we've got three questions in a cluster here. Hi, thanks. I, I'm just wondering, I'm, I'm sitting here listening and I'm hearing a lot of questions that are about mistrust. And that's of great concern to me. I think when we say that, you know, it won't affect us if we live here, but it will affect us if we live there, from my point of view and working on the premise of this, that the IPCC has just released a report saying that the whole planet is in crisis. It isn't about moving the problem elsewhere. We're all connected. But my question was about trust, and I wonder what processes can be put in place so that people can have an ongoing role in developing this. And, and based on that, the issue that, that Don broke trust with going ahead and those people have left and that issue. I'm wondering even if it's, if it's a question for a lawyer about what processes can be put in place to ensure that those agreements have ongoing, what's the word I'm looking for, you know, ongoing applicability or whatever. I can't give you a legal perspective on that, right. firstly. I would invite people to come along to the EPA session in three weeks' time and hear them out. <laughs> Ask all your difficult questions to the EPA because the question of trust is not just perhaps uncertainty about what we're proposing and drawing on past experiences and so on, but it's also um, perhaps a lack of understanding and most of us do not have a good understanding of what the EPA regulations are about. So give them an opportunity to answer the questions so that hopefully that starts to build trust that there's a process there that should be working in our interests. I would be looking to get something into the, the EPA licence about the management plan that gave community oversight. I think that would be you know, the, the way to do that. So it's a licensed responsibility that they engage with the neighbours and the local community and demonstrate, or the, the operators demonstrate, that it is complying with everything it's meant to do. Hi, my name's Karen, and my question, or statement then, perhaps question, is on trust, but also on curbside waste. I'm reading directly from your own Q&A, 1, 2 and 3, that it starts with curbside waste will only come to us via collection, which is what we've heard. But as I keep going down the exact same area. The Shire Council has been very supportive of this project and well aware that this will be best separated at the curbside. Note, once collected and consolidated, we will have little knowledge of the original source location of what is in the truck delivering to us. And then it says all households will have access to the FOGO system, which is in a lot of shires across the state, by 2030. So we'll all get a green organic bin. And it is possible, and this is directly quoted, it is possible that where this is collected at local curbsides, a collector who's collecting it might want to bring it directly to KR. So we're talking trust here, but I'm reading, you just said up there it won't come from curbside. Here, it is saying it is very strong potential when FOGO bins come in in 2030, it will come from directly from curbside. And might I just finish with, yep. the Jandicott one is our sister city when it comes to having a plant. But from their own press release, they said that their digester is not a waste service that would expand to households because the risk of contamination disrupting the process was too high. We do have a machine that does have a certain ability to remove a level of contamination, and then they were asked, can it remove everything? No, it cannot. Yep. I, I, if, it, if, it, if it's typical food organic, garden organic material, 
I don't think there's any way we'd be able to take it directly from the truck at that site. If council focus on getting food only, so not so much garden, it could potentially go to the site, but it'd have to be decontaminated at the site. But I think it's much more likely. that That's a more difficult feed stream for a facility like this. So the desired streams, food waste from food manufacturers, cafes, sources where you know you're getting food and you're dealing with you know, specific sites. I think the curbside stuff, it will be a challenge to take it directly at the site. But it won't be impossible that, say, Bendigo or, or other areas, they might drop a, a wet fraction out that, of the, the Fogo waste, the, the food organics, garden organics waste, clean it up and that to be suitable as an input. But I, I, I think the, the chances on that site of taking in stuff directly from curb are pretty low. Hi, my name's John. I think we've heard two really important things tonight. First one is applause for what sounds like a really positive local project to do something about a global problem. But I think we've also heard some legitimate social concern and that I think probably resonates with everyone because we're all familiar with projects that promised a lot and then have left an environmental problem yeah. for somebody else. I'm just wondering whether the project team had considered something in that it's all very well to have the EPA and so forth, mm -hmm. but I'm just wondering whether a project had considered any kind of economic guarantee and whether that kind of guarantee could be absorbed within the commercial profile of the project. Sorry, I'll, what, what do you mean? Well, it's a bet. Yep. The bet is that nothing will go wrong, yep. but the other side of the bet is somebody loses, and I'm just wondering whether you had considered some sort of economic guarantee in case the committee is right and you guys were wrong. Yeah. Going through the EPA process, I'll decide whether a financial assurance is needed, but you know, the, the reality is the facility doesn't perform EPA will just shut the gate. Seriously, we are small fry. I sort of see this as not so much the waste industry, it's resource recovery from organics, but you know they are a big focus of the EPA. I think somewhere like Don's as a major employer probably gets more of a free ride than they should from time to time. I think the new regs will clamp down on them and others in that boat, but something like this, EPA would not hesitate to shut down. I think that's the truth. Well, it's part of the reason that the, the new regs are there. There's a lot more stuff on how materials are stored. EPA, they probably were asleep at the wheel a bit with some of those sites. I don't think they, they're asleep at the wheel now. For me, a real concern is risk for, of explosion. I do notice here that you've said biogas is inherently safe because it is not explosive. But I was reading an article today about four that died in the UK by a biomass facility, sorry, biodigester exploding in the UK. Yep. Okay, well, I, you know, gas burns, so there, there would be some potential. I guess that's the sort of thing that goes through the, the planning process and the, the regulators. If energy's safe. Someone interrupted Bill here, and I can't hear what they said. Dean picks it up after a small off-mic discussion that I've cut out. So I think one of the implicit question is that these, there is a risk of things happening. What would we do about to prevent that risk? Well, I don't know about the UK situation. And like all these things in life, we need to find out, get the facts behind it to see exactly what was going on there because most things in life, it's not what it appears to be. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but there was obviously circumstances that led to that, which are very unusual because in Germany, and you can Google it, I, I haven't done it myself, but where you've got 10,000 of these or more, 
all over the place on farms next to residences in villages and so on, and I've seen quite a few of those, we don't see explosions happening. So if there's good, robust design, if it's compliant with the EPA, because not all the things are, as we've just heard before, people do make mistakes, we are human, things break down, and you know, shit happens. So the process that we will be going through, again, this is standard engineering, but the EPA, and I've got a slide up there, which I won't necessarily show you, because I know we're running out of time, but it's there, that shows you a detailed risk assessment matrix when we assess basically the, the severity of an accident occurring and the likelihood of it. And so you multiply those together and then they colour code it. So you've got extreme risk, right? So you, things can happen which the consequence might be very high, like you, people could die. But the probability if it's one in a million, right, it's deemed not to be necessarily an extreme risk overall. There's other bigger fish to focus on. So it's a case of understanding, well, if that is possible, what strategies can you put in place to prevent that from happening? That's the way we approach it as professional engineers, and the EPA is taking exactly the same approach. So, you know, we'll, we'll take that on board for sure, and we can look into that if you provide the link back to that site you're looking at, and maybe that will reveal something that I can't address right now. But it's certainly not an intention that we have, nor will it be part of the engineering design where we want this sort of thing to happen. It's extremely, extremely, extremely unlikely and rare. Okay, look, my question is a bit of clarification about the land that you propose to build this on, that it presently is zoned as a buffer zone, is that correct? No, no, Mary, it's not, no. It's not, No. okay. It's, it's the same zoning as the Don factory. Right. And it was our choice, our recommendation in our discussions with Don was not to put it at the end on where the trees are, where the little hill is, even though that technically that is feasible to put it there and the EPA will still grant a licence there, but the preference is to stick with industrial zone one, which is what it's meant for. Right. So okay. that's why we sort we, I mean, we tried our best to find a place that would meet the respective parties' interests and have it sort of tucked away largely out of sight, but in, out of harm's way, in a sense, within that existing zoning and title boundary. I think the issue here is that many of us would agree with um, somewhat with the idea of you know, the future and environmental concerns, but the issue probably does come down to the site. Yep, no, I hear that. Did you say that there will, the existing render plant will be made obsolete? So at the moment, Dons have a waste treatment plant, which is another way of saying it's a rendering plant. Like you take in there, you cook it to a high temperature, you, you what do you call, what's the word? Essentially, you decontaminate it. You, get, you kill the pathogens and so on, like sterilise it. So, yeah. so that requires a lot of energy and a lot of those wastes go through there. In future, we'll be diverting that waste, the proposition would divert that waste before it goes into the rendering plant and it comes straight into the biodigester. So the rendering plant over time, and how long that bit of string is, I don't know, but there might be a transition period where they, it has to be bedded in. Might be a year, might be two years, I don't know, because that's partly their call and how they manage risk. But there'd be no need for it if and that waste stream doesn't go in there any longer. And would that, the loss of the render plant, would that improve the amenity for the local residents? Well, if you look at the source of emissions and odour and noise and risk, that's a significant, that's one of the top items for Dons. But they're obviously, they couldn't operate if they didn't have that facility. So they're pretty keen if they could close it down. 
and, and I think people who live within proximity and who are here on odd occasion, and maybe too, too many occasions, I don't know, you can hear the noise at different times. That's most likely, but I won't say categorically because I don't know, but it most likely comes from that facility. But you'll have to ask Don's that question. I don't know the answer to that. Hi, I'm Bergen. Thanks for the presentation. I found that really very impressive. There was a mention in there of that this shire produces a lot of woody waste that could potentially be used in the bio plant. And I'm aware that we're increasingly in higher bushfire danger as seasons go on and it's clear that the environmental situation is pushing us that way. Can you just itemise a few of the woody wastes that would be used? Are these sort of orchards or parks yeah. and gardens reduced waste or that sort of thing? Yeah, no, it's a good question that. The feasibility study did a bit of a survey of what was available on all the waste streams in the region to a radius of about 50 to 80 kilometres from here in all directions. And the Harcourt region with its horticulture produces, and it's a number that I think is in the feasibility study, something like 26,000 trees a year are pulled out and replanted in this ongoing cycle. At the moment, a lot of those, I mean, what happens to them? People aren't going to pay to get those taken away. Why would they? I mean, if I was one of those, I'd just put it in a big pile and on an appropriate day, I'd burn it, right? If I was an apple orchard, for example. In the feasibility study, the consultants went and spoke to those people and they would happily release that timber and it could be chipped on site in a portable chipper and taken and then stored in a bunker. And this is exactly what I've seen happening in Europe, where they put a roof over the top so it stays dry and it's like a battery. It sits there till you need the energy and then they feed it in and convert it to energy. And that would be an ongoing renewable source of energy for the facility. There are potentially other waste streams that will come from environmental thinning Dean, can we just have some time for more questions? Is that okay? There's still more people that want to ask some questions. I'm sorry to cut you off, but you have had the floor for quite a long time, so if um, other people can ask questions. Excuse I'm me, I'm, I am allowed to I'm, ask I'm questions. I'm simply ask, answering a question. Yeah, I'm know, happy to take anyone's question. I'm just question. wondering if we can start asking questions again. As an environmental group, I understand there's some trees to be chopped down on the roadside and on that site. As an environmental group, how can you ever justify doing that? to accommodate the plant. So I'll answer that really briefly, mindful that other people have got questions that yep. want answering as well. We haven't actually done any study or even had a discussion about removing trees on the site. That has just not happened. It was recorded in your Q&A. What does it say there? Please um, tell me. That there would be some existing vegetation removed. Well, look, that, it, there's regrowth happening there all the time. I mean, we yeah, are, no. you've, you've got to believe and it's a question of trust that wherever we can maintain that we will and we'll go beyond that, we'll be putting trees that harmoniously fit into that environment of ecological value. But we'll some of those trees are three to five hundred years old. We so won't be surely you wouldn't be taking those down. We won't down. be touching those, come on. Yep. I just wondered, with this proposed plant, dealing with the waste in this manner is not supported by the federal government's waste policy. So their preference is that hierarchy of waste and burning you waste to energy is one of the least preferred when there's other ways of dealing with waste. Okay, thanks for the question. I helped write that policy, so... <laughs> um, so you would know it's so, one of the least so preferred. So the waste... <laughs> okay. So the waste hierarchy, you're right, is reduce, so avoid and reduce, and MADS um, is supporting the, the YIMBY program, trying to get people to reduce food waste and compost more at home, so we're part of that. When it comes to this sort of waste stream, it gets to be a grey area. Like obviously aluminium, 
or, or cardboards, let's use cardboard because you can burn that for energy. You're better off recycling that than burning it for energy. When it comes to food waste, what do you recycle it into? But don't you try and reduce it yeah, to start we, with? Yeah, we try Elimin to reduce it. Elimination is any risk We try to reduce it. At, you know, I, I can tell you I've worked in the waste industry for 30 years in organic resource recovery. Yeah. We're not going to run out of organic waste in a hurry, unfortunately. So my answer is, it, you, you start looking at good environmental use for these um, materials and bioenergy, you end up with negative greenhouse gas emissions from it. If you commercially compost that, which some people would say is recycling, I would I'd put it in a different category. It's sort of somewhere between recycling and energy recovery, if you like. It uses a lot of water, it uses a lot of energy, it has some greenhouse gas emissions, and I, my career has been around compost. I love compost, it's great stuff. But once again, the market is oversupplied, so we offer another opportunity for organic just, waste. Just one more question. Yep. Sorry, well, you're not letting me answer your question. I thought you'd finish, though. Well, you wanted to ask the question. Anyway, yeah, okay. ask your other question. Have you finished? Go on. Yes. Okay, so whilst you can't take too much notice of social media, two of the MassArg members had proudly suggested that plywood material sawdust could be put through the biomass plant, not even knowing what sort of glues, whether it had formaldehyde or anything. They thought that would be great to go through the biomass plant. So that they're actually MassArg members, and one of them was yep. very proud to say he was party to deciding on where this plant would go. So that's okay. that's really concerning when you've got MassArg members deciding what can go into it and what would be suitable if okay. it's contaminated Look, waste like oh, that. The only answer to that is we, whatever the design capability of the, the thermal plant is will determine what can go into it. Things like particle board, a small amount of particle board, if it hasn't got heavy metal treatments in it, it would be managed by it but it wouldn't be a focus of what we're getting. So the feedstocks that come into it are going to be constrained on what the actual technology is and what's allowed. So I, I don't think they're completely wrong. You can even compost some of that material if it's sawdust. No, you know what's in it. So, yeah. I don't think they said we'd take anything. Again, Bill was interrupted and then responds to what was said off mic. So I've cut it. Just a, another quick question. When will the technical drawings come out and would there be an independent person to review the technical drawings of the plant? Yeah, so the technical drawings come out when the engineering company that's been awarded the contract by competitive tender, in other words, they're using the best available technology, when they've done that design, it'll be an iterative process working together with the EPA, and if it's not compliant with the EPA stringent guidelines, it won't come out because the design will have to be changed, firstly. So that's the time frame around that. I hope that answers your question there. Yeah, in terms of independence, I can tell you that the best independent party you're ever going to find are the investors. If you know anything about investors, they scrutinise this because they do not want to take on any risk, and we're talking to, we're talking to parties at the moment, right? And the questions that they ask are in phenomenal detail because they, it's all about financial and commercial risk. It's far more stringent than anyone in this room might be considering. I can assure you that. Oh, I've got a two-part question. The first part really is more of a statement. I used to live two miles from an anaerobic digester in the UK. And from what I could tell, there was no smells, emissions or anything like that. It was a very popular thing because it diverted household waste, food waste into compost and electricity and it was really well supported in the community but when 
I've learned about this project, I realized that there was a biomass as well as an anaerobic digester. So anaerobic digestion, very much in favor. The biomass, people tend to get concerned about chimneys and stuff coming out of chimneys. So my question is, would there be a chimney and what would be coming out of them? I, I can answer that. We, we actually have a technology specialist in the audience who maybe I can defer to if you're happy for me to do that. Or sorry, if the person... Adam, is it? Adam? Okay, do you want to say who you are and perhaps answer that question better than I could? First of all, so my name's Adam Riley. I'm here uh, on behalf of my company, Advanced Energy Tech. I'm based up the road just here in Bendigo. It's great to see so many people here tonight who are concerned about the environment. Obviously, that's why we're all here, community members. I'd just like to address a few things that I've heard. I've heard the word burning. To put some context, I'm not going to hijack this night or anything like that. My, my company's imported a, a very small modular gasification plant out of North America. And I did that because I'm concerned about the climate. I'm concerned about what we're doing. I'm in my mid-30s. I just want to add a lot of the things that I've heard. Are trust issues with technology. Trust issues with companies. And, and they're never going to go away. The technology ones we can build trust in over time, that's what my company is setting out to do. My company is setting out to demonstrate different recycling technologies, and gasification is one of those, and a whole other range of technologies that support recycling. So we adhere to the hierarchy. But what I want to add is the, I hear a lot of concern around the what if this happens, that's going to have that effect. The, the true crime's already been done if we don't change what we're doing. These waste products are destroying our environment. I mean, you don't have to read a, a paper from a university to know that. You can look on Netflix and look at the amount of documentaries that are being done right now. Look at the amount of CO2 in our atmosphere. Look at what methane's doing. And so especially when you're talking about waste coming out of somewhere like Don's, and what that produces, and, and I know I hear deep burial and toxic and, and these sorts of words, Thermal processes is the most efficient way, and in my, it's my opinion, and I hope to show everybody that in the most transparent way I can. We're setting up a demonstration facility which will be open to public. Just over 12 months I've been working side by side with the EPA. I've been in business for 20 years and this has been the biggest undertaking in my life. The amount of information that we've learnt, the consultants that we're using, they don't leave any stone unturned, I can assure you. And I just think it's fantastic that everyone's here and voicing their concern, but I just want to make a bit of a statement and say the real tragedy would be that if we don't change what we're doing, our current practices, with this waste, going to landfill or even trying to send our waste somewhere else. You know, on a local level, Castlemaine to Bendigo, Bendigo to another regional setting. On a macro level, Australia's recycling going to China, the recycling facilities catching on fire. I agree, it's disgusting. So let's change it. Let's be responsible for our waste. Sorry, can I just answer the question? The intent of the project is to produce gas that will be used the way natural gas is used at the site at present. So the chimneys will be the chimneys that are burning gas now. So the idea is not creating new emissions, it's creating new gas. Thank you. My name's Ken Price. I'm a third generation Castlemaine resident. And look, I've enjoyed the meeting tonight. It's been informative. And as a gardener uh, myself, I am interested in the products that come from this 
plants, including biochar and so on. But it has become clear that there are a number of issues that people have with this. My main concern is one of who gets to invest. I think people want clear answers on who is investing uh, how much money, how much money will be made, what will the benefits to the community be, and really beyond, I mean, we can see there'll be renewable energy, that's a benefit to the factory. The tonnes diverted from landfill will be a benefit to the landfill. The emissions reductions will be a benefit to the factory. What are the benefits to the community? And having lived near the wastewater treatment plants in the past, as a child I know, even if the air isn't toxic, air can smell and uh, while it was a choice uh, that my family made to live there and I have no problem with that, a plant like this coming near and moving into an area where there are already residents, that is a concern. Uh, it may not be toxic, will it smell and most importantly can we actually invest and what will we see as local residents in terms of real benefits to our lives. There's a lot of questions wrapped up there, but they're all good. As you were saying them, I was thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm aligned with you on pretty much all of those points. I can't see where I where don't agree with that. So in, from an investment point of view, we've said right up front that we need to be careful and very mindful of who the investors are and what stake of investment they have in there. And our approach has been in discussions, preliminary discussions we've had is with the ethical superannuation fund people. So they've got strong values and we, we recognise that this community has strong values and we want to make sure from the outset that there's strong alignment because, you know, we're all in, in the MASC space and there's probably MASC members in the room. I think we all share those values at one level or the other. And so that needs to be communicated and we are communicating that through to those other parties because we want to end up with something that we're proud of and happy to live with, not the opposite. So our opportunity to say that is right at those early stages. The benefits to the community, well we think there's benefits to community in terms of employment benefits, there's benefits by keeping the money in the town as well because every time we buy energy that's not generated in the town it goes into someone else's pocket if we can keep it within the shire, that's a benefit to the shire. In terms of the dropping the emissions, that's important to the community we believe and we, I mean, I can't think of another project like this in Australia that's got a community essence about it and we're, we're happy to make that stronger in whatever way we can or you can come and talk to us but um, that has potentially such a powerful community footprint that this project and in a way we should be I think we should be really thankful that that Don's actually does exist because they enable these types of projects to happen to be viable and it's not as though it's adding to the burden it's actually doing something about what Adam here was talking about before. The, the biochar aspect, fantastic, and that's what the whole thing is about, keeping those products happening locally that people can use and engage with. So we think there's multiple benefits to the community, and we'll talk more about that going forward for sure. I'm Malcolm Robbins. I'm an engineer who's practised in the process industries for nearly 50 years. I'm now semi-retired, and I now am an avid fighter against fossil gas as many people know. So I'm essentially a left-wing greenie who used to be in the process industries now. Looking at this project at a macro level, what's it doing for the community? It's saving 88,000 tonnes per year of, of carbon, uh, carbon equivalent, and that's equivalent approximately to the total carbon consumption of, of the Mount Alexander community, consists of 17,300 people. Average number of people in a, in, a, in a house is 2.2, 2, 
which means there's about about 8,000 households, and the and the equivalent amount of carbon use of that number of households is virtually identical to the predicted saving on this plant. So effectively, it, this on its own could be regarded as making Mount Alexander carbon neutral without any change in consumption and reduction in fossil gas. And the other thing it's doing is replacing fossil gas with renewable gas. So essentially we're taking 88,000 tonnes of fossil gas out of the market, which is a good thing. That, well, my question is, but how do we balance that and the need to fit the, fix the climate against possible hypothetical, yet as yet unproven grievances, which good engineering practice can resolve if the Australian standards are followed, if the environmental standards are followed, and if engineers working on it follow the code of ethics. Yeah, the point of the question is, do we look at this at an individual level of what some yeah. people think, what an opinion is, or do we look at it at what the facts mean? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And, and, and that's, a, that's a very big question. It's one that I personally would hope that everybody in this room and other people in the community Will, will consider increasingly over you know, coming months because it, you know, some of us, we don't all think the same, we don't all see things the same, but ultimately, and that's why we set the zero net emissions goal, which the council's picked up on, we think that's really important to the community. And this project we see as being a major response towards that and everybody will benefit from that. I mean, I daringly even said to the council at one point, this could reduce the, the rates for the ratepayers in the town because it's alleviating the burden, right? So I've got a question about safety. On the um, back page of this flyer you handed out, it says you anticipate that three to five employees will be employed on site during a working day between 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. Because you said earlier during the presentation that the biomass plant will be running 24 hours a day, how can you ensure that that is managed properly without the employed staff to look after it during those vacant or absent 13 hours? No, what we said is that the anaerobic digester will con operate continually because the bugs don't stop. So I thought be, you said biomass. No, biomass, we said that's a continual process. Didn't say 24 hours. You can listen to the recording. I would not have said 24 hours. What was the difference between continual process? Now, unfortunately, Dean goes off mic here for this answer. He stayed close enough to the mic that I could hear the response, and he basically said that the biomass part of the plant, the bit that takes the hard woody waste, needs staff and will be stopped at the end of each day and started up again in the morning. The biogas, or the wet composty part that relies on microbes, will run 24-7, as obviously microbes don't clock off. He said again that this is not new technology, and it's common, especially in the EU. But the important point there is that these technologies are monitored continually. And then there's people on the end of the phone, should something happen, there's alarms built in, it's, that's all safe, best available engineering technology, it's been around for a long time, that's why planes don't drop out of the sky regularly and so on. There's double and triple fail-safe mechanisms that secure that, so we'd be doing the same. Are you going to pelletise the wood chips? Not necessarily. I mean, that's a design engineering question. I wouldn't have thought so personally. I don't think there's a need to do that. Pelletising is more for different types of applications. We might pelletise biochar, for example, for fertiliser blending, but 
I don't envisage that that would be necessary for wood chips. Would that mean there'd be a natural gas line to help keep the furnace up to the desired temperature to incinerate the plastic? I'm concerned about the plastic liners that have to be disposed of through the biomass process. That has to happen at a certain temperature, is that correct? The, the plastic liners? Yes, that comes from imported pork from Denmark and Canada? No, the plastic, where it's polyethylene, high density or low density polyethylene, that breaks down, there's no liners, it's just the material as it is. And we, we're doing investigations at the moment from Don's looking at all their lists and saying that we can accept, that we can't. At this point, someone from the audience spoke up off mic and brought the question back around to temperatures and how do you get the heated part of the plant up to temperature without using fossil fuel gas supply, things like that. I've said it a number of times, but we don't make that decision ourselves. The consulting engineers who are awarded the contract on the basis of their competence and capability and proven expertise, that's written into their requirements and they have to demonstrate that they can tick all those boxes because it's too big a risk for us to even embark down that process. Okay, so I think rather than continue the um, to and fro, we are at time, and I know that you have more questions. There are quite a number of questions still, but we have run to time. So what we will need to do is wrap it up. Thank you very much indeed for all of the time and energy that you brought to, brought to this. There are, Dean, a number of next steps. We've talked about the EPA meeting. Can you just remind the group when that... And that was the end of the Q&A. And if you are local and want to know what the next steps are, please go to the website, bioenergy.net.au. There is possibly an event happening on the 21st of September, which is a Q&A with the EPA. So if people have questions specifically about the regulations and how this plant will be monitored, you can go to that information session. It does depend a bit on COVID lockdowns and whether or not that is able to be a live event. Go to the MADS website or bioenergy.net.au if you want to find out more about that. After the Q&A, quite a lot of people stuck around to talk as tables and chairs were packed up. I managed to get a sense of what some people were thinking after the meeting. If their names are not mentioned, it's because they asked not to be identified. First up, here's Lucy Young, who made the comment about trust early on in the night. She was standing there with Bill, so I took the opportunity to ask him how he felt it went as well. A lot of the questions were coming from a place tonight of trying to, like, catch out mask trying to see where the mistake is or demonstrate that they're doing something wrong and that's where you know I thought that the trust thing was really just glaringly obvious Mm. and to be honest we live in a world where there isn't a lot of trust why would we trust corporate entities why would we trust developers so you know it's to me it's like what kind of process or dialogue can we create where those people who are obviously really concerned can be heard and get to a place where what they're really worried about can be expressed because I don't think we're really hearing what their main concerns are. It's just them demonstrating that they don't feel safe and they're not trusting. And I get that. Yeah. There's a hell of a lot of people on this planet I don't trust. Yeah, yeah. Just so happens that I know Maz, so I do trust them. I know where people are coming from in their hearts and minds. But those people don't. Yeah. 
And it's hard, like in a forum like this, where we have a culture where people stand up, like look at our parliament. They stand up and they scream at each other. They're our role models. How do you feel like it went, Bill? Oh, I think it's a pity the, the time got cut short. I think it would have been good to, to keep asking questions and hopefully people will keep asking questions. I think to take Lucy's point around trust and just how we can build that and also how people can be assured that the, the regulations, the EPA licence and the, the, the management of that licence will give them a look in and they can feel that they can trust the process. So I'm hoping that's where we get to and you know, MASG is coming from a point we're not trying to make a profit, we're, we're trying to save a lot of greenhouse gas emissions so you know we will be looking to get that sort of protection in any approval for the facility. How does it feel as an environmental organisation to be the ones people don't trust to treat the environment well? It's a bit, yeah it's a little odd you know you roll with it We've, we're focused on getting good outcomes hopefully we can bring people with us. Andrew Lang. I'm involved with the Victorian Bioenergy Network and before that I was involved with the World Bioenergy Association. So it's been very interesting to see how Mount Alexander Shire is taking a lead in various areas, in various aspects of this whole deal. It's interesting to get that view of how things are being done elsewhere and particularly in Northern and Central Europe. They're very advanced in this sort of thing. Can I ask you how you feel like that went? Yes. It's really interesting, this thing of a split in the community between to people who think it's generally a good idea and people who are really anxious about some aspect and how you deal with that. I've spent a lot of time in Europe going through just these sort of plants and in the little state of northern Austria, nearly every town has a local heating plant using wood chip to make heat that circulates around the community. It's just everywhere, but it's very new in Australia, the the whole concept of this. So what we really need are demonstration plants that people can see how well they work and and then it'll catch on and there'll be much more take up particularly with anaerobic digestion of all of that kitchen waste and other putrescible wastes. But, but as a farmer, a really good idea to see a better use for straw and wood chip and chip farm forestry and that sort of material because there's no market for it. We just burn it all on the farm and we've got to get out of that. Just out of curiosity, are a lot of those plants in Europe m- more on the incineration end? <laughs> I'm a bit allergic to the use of the word incineration. It's not a very useful term. I mean, they're, they're combustion systems and, and the incineration tends to be used when you're talking about mixed municipal wastes. And yes, there are about 500 of those big mixed municipal waste plants that are turning that, that mix of, of plastics and old nappies and discarded shirts and bits of furniture into heat and power. But when you're talking about burning that sort of dry organic matter like wood and straw you'd never call it an incinerator you'd just call it a, a furnace or a combustion plant. I, I guess the difference is you know is the smoke all going up in the chimney or is it being dealt with more effectively? In Europe you never see smoke coming out of a chimney and you never see that situation like and well in some parts of Europe you would the situation like we have here where where there'll be every house inefficient little potbelly stove or an inefficient open fireplace and so smoke going out of every flue and chimney. That's all been cleaned up. We're stuck with these inefficient smoky systems 
that we don't have to have. It really is a different level of emissions out of those plants. It's, it's a really, really highly regulated, you would never get away with it. The police would be at your door if you had a smoky fireplace. Yeah. It's, it's, that, it's that simple. I just want to get a sense of how you felt tonight went and if it helped you understand the plant at all. I'm not qualified to say whether the plant is going to work or not work, but there's so many things that can go wrong with it. And that was tonight, didn't really allay any of my fears about what can go in. You know, there's so many thousand tonne of product going to be going into that plant every day. Last meeting, there was going to be no sorting on site. This meeting, oh, we're going to sort on site. So what are we going to do? What is going to happen? It only takes one, one truckload of someone doing the wrong thing, a mistake, pure human error. Someone loads a truck with the wrong material, goes through the plant, then it's too late. And so you live near the plant, so it would directly affect you, yeah. Yeah. And so were there any questions answered for you tonight or did it just raise more for you? No, it just reinforces the fact for me that no matter what things are put in place, no matter how strict the EPA licences are, if someone does the wrong thing either by just being human and making a mistake or later on five years down the track that all the conditions are varied, EPA licences are changed and suddenly they've got different product running through the plant because MAB don't have any say in it anymore or don't have enough control and money, money overrides good intention. 30 years to run a plant's a long time. Who, who knows what can happen in five years, ten years. Look at what's changed in Castlemaine in the last ten years. Look back 20 years, look back 30 years. So, huge amount of change can happen. Look how many changes have happened at Castle Bacon, or KR, as it now is, good and bad. So, once it's in, we're stuck with it for 30 years. I think it was interesting. I think the concept is fantastic. And it's still in a conceptual stage for me. I just feel like that there's, there was a lot of talk about the EPA. Once it's established that the EPA will automatically monitor, regulate, take care of it. I'd like to see some feedback loops that include community oversight in the management plan. I think that's essential based on historical EPA performance in communities. There's obviously a lot of strong feeling here about Don and historical feeling and that blocks people from moving forward. Just to overcome that and build trust, I just don't think it's enough to do it here and yeah. then have it established. So that's my feedback, yeah. Mm. There's a lot of talk about, you know, conceptually how this thing might work. And I think that there's a huge amount of ground to be covered to take that concept from the planning phase to something that's actually going to work in the long term. Given the variabilities of, 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 of typically waste streams, they're not always, you know, like homogenous and, and, and can be engineered to a particular feedstock. So there's a whole lot of variables that need to be built into this to make it work to the level that the community can have the, the, the right level of uh, confidence that it's going to meet all their objectives and, and it's going to perform in a way that's not going to degrade the local environment. But I think there's a long way to go to actually get there. It's like the community, they want the outcome, this fantastic outcome of zero emissions, but why are we partnering with, you know, these people we don't trust? So that, that if they can build a feedback loop that's solid and regular and ongoing for the first five years or, or probably longer, 
just to build that in. That would help some fractured relationships, I think, that you can, you can hear in there. I was a little bit off-put by a certain person who kept asking questions in, in a particularly aggressive way. I found that a little bit off-putting. I'd like that to be managed a bit better next time if I come if that's okay yeah. to say that. It's tricky, isn't it? I mean, I'm not involved in running it at all, but if you look like you're shutting someone like that up, then that becomes a narrative as well, that you're shutting up people. So it's like this really delicate balance, isn't it? It's hard to manage that, I agree. But there's a lot of people and there's a lot of people have good things to say and they want an opportunity to say it. Yeah, so we, we thoroughly enjoyed it. And then as John said, the waste streams, in our experience, we have both worked in the EPA in, uh -huh. in New South Wales, so we know what contaminated waste streams look like, don't we, John? Well, we know yeah. the difficulties in trying to sort of get uncontaminated waste streams, you know, and typically processes like this need consistent, homogenous, clean waste streams. It's the variability of the waste stream. Typically, organics has a seasonal variability and getting consistent, clean, green streams is the real difficulty to try and overcome in this particular context. It's interesting to me that you have both worked in or with the EPA quite closely in the past and you're the ones telling me just earlier that you think it's vital that it's, we don't just lean on the EPA alone. <laughs> That's interesting to me. Like, I just think the times have changed. Times are changing, people are very engaged, people have historical problems with regulation and oversight and trust. And those things need to be repaired. And for government departments to coming together with people, so there's not systemic sort of problems that get overlooked in, in council or government, you know, in hierarchy. So. It's about building a level of confidence too. I mean, I think typically what communities want is they want to have a level of confidence in the process such that the EPA won't actually need to be involved. It's when they're relying on the EPA to come in to regulate this thing to make it actually work properly, that's where the confidence falls away. The EPA shouldn't need to do that because everybody should have the confidence that all of the players in this particular process. They're going to do the right thing. It's going to operate in the way that they uh, say it's going to operate. It's going to do the things that they say it's going to do and the EPA won't need to come in over the top and continually regulate that process to make it work. They should be a last resort. Exactly, ideally. Yeah. ideally. And that's it. As mentioned earlier, information is available on the website bioenergy.net.au. On the resources page, they have a downloadable copy of the handout that was given out at this meeting. Mazzy is very happy to take questions and comments, and there are more meetings planned in the next couple of months. And I have links to all of those things in the episode description at saltgrasspodcast.com. I'd be really interested to hear from people listening from overseas who have perhaps gone through a similar process in your region about introducing projects like this or bioenergy plants. You know, 10 years ago, Mazg was trying to get a wind farm up and wind farms are now really commonly accepted, but there was a big community pushback because back then there was a lot of fears about wind and the damage it would do to bird and wildlife and certain vibrations that might happen from the wind turbine were concerns in the community. And the project got stopped because of that. 
I'm not saying that the fears around the bioenergy plant are unfounded, but I'm really curious to hear from people who perhaps live in close proximity to one and what that is like for you and whether your community had to go through a similar process of adjustment or acceptance of such a facility. So let me know. You can find out how to contact me at saltgrasspodcast.com and I can share that with listeners in future episodes. This program was made possible with support from Main FM and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. My name is Alison Hanley. Thanks for listening. Salt of the Earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com.